This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to Bite Into It. Tonight we find out what's been keeping Code for Australia busy and we hear from a researcher investigating insertable technologies. Tonight you'll be speaking to Dan Salmon. Hello. Kate Dean. Hello. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for joining us. Also this evening from 6 to 8pm, our co-host Warren Davies is facilitating a panel on the quantified self, which is all about life hacking in the internet age. Quite relevant to our show this evening. This session is presented by Sensi Lab at the Faculty of Information Technology, Monash University, as part of Melbourne Knowledge Week, which is an event that we really love. So, well, a series of events that we love. So we've been spruiking it a fair bit. Um, but if you have questions about life hacking and about that panel, you can tweet them to at not the word and uh, maybe hashtag quantified self if you want to get involved in that discussion as well as listening to our show. We can we can multitask this evening. It's going to be pretty good. We can try. Yeah, we can definitely try. It's such so, a great sounding panel. <laughs> it's really good, isn't it? Yeah. But we'll hear back about that next week with Warren. Um, so for now, the big news of the week is clearly the budget and an interesting budget because we're heading straight into a federal election. But we wanted to look at the aspects of it that related to our beloved tech community. So let's have a look at some of that. So, um, yeah, look, I've, I did watch the budget speech and the word startup was used numerous times during, during the evening. Um, you know, startups are one of Malcolm Turnbull's, I suppose, uh, fav- favorite things when it comes to, you know, tech and, and, uh, you, you could say failing and, fast is his raison d'etre. <laughs> hey now. Come on. But, um, yeah, look, I mean, there, there are all kinds of, uh, in- incentives for small business that, that are possible, that could possibly be um uh, exp- uh, i don't want to use the word exploited but take uh taken advantage of by <laughs> that's literally the same that's, thing that but with more more syllables more, with more syllables oh look um taking it taking advantage of work so yeah yeah no i mean one, one th- i mean it is one of uh his uh like you said raison d'etre um there have there's been some criticism from the uh, financial review that um f- uh particularly from the uh, chief executive of uh, startup oz alex mccauley saying that um uh, expansion of capital gains, tax-free early-stage venture capital limited partnerships, and extension of crowdsource equity funding opportunities to retail investors were all all announced six months ago and haven't passed the Senate. So that's not really kind of a new thing. Um, but uh, at at the same time, it, it is uh, an election budget. It's not particularly. Um, uh, I suppose groundbreaking. They're not looking to uh, spend a whole lot of money on a whole lot of things. So I don't think that we were really surprised about much that actually came through. I think, though, that uh, the one thing I'd say about that is we have to make sure as part of a, a, a general sense that we don't try to aim for the Silicon Valley model, which is the thing that everybody keeps talking about. I'm interested in, in uh, the Silicon Valley uh, model that we sort of are chasing after is kind of there's talk about that collapsing now. So while we... Uh, walk into this election year and have all this discussion about you know startups and things like that it'd be really amazing to see that happen whilst that silicon valley itself starts to struggle i wonder if that would have like an impact on the on the um on the election deification yeah. of mm. that sort of yeah the, the seeing sector, the flaws of it like yeah, running, totally. yeah absolutely another another thing that um is that was a big ticket item in this year's budget was the so-called google tax mm-hmm. um 
look, uh, it's it's a no no big secret that the government has been trying to chase money from multinationals and particularly tech multinationals for the last few years. There are, I suppose we're, we're yet to see a response from the from the major players, Google, Apple, those kind of companies about what they what they will do in response to this. But it, it should be an interesting few months at the very least. So nothing particularly new on the NBN front in the budget. Uh, it's it's good to note that. The government-owned company responsible for building the NBN receives its final piece of the initial allocation of $29.5 billion in public funding in this year's budget, but anything else is um, up to further budgets or further uh, private investment or public investment. So, Yay! Mm, <laughs> the NBN that's not the NBN that it started out to be. Nearly broadband network. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, there was something interesting uh, related to the CSIRO in the budget, which was that, you know, the CSIRO has been, been gutted a lot. Mm. And uh, one of the areas that the people who are left will be looking at is possibly blockchain technology, which is the peer-to-peer protocol popularised by Bitcoin. Um, it's difficult to see how they're exactly going to encourage that. It was a, it was a bit general, the, the mention at the moment, but they're like, yes, CSIRO will have money to look into blockchain technology. Yeah, it kind of sounds like everyone's looking at me because um, for, formerly of a Bitcoin company in, in Australia. Um, so uh, I think the thing with this is that blockchain runs the risk of sounding a bit like Bitcoin did when it first started and started getting traction, which is that it has a number of uses and those uses are extremely valuable. But there, there's, a, again, the datification of, of the technology. And the problem with that is is that uh, I, I, don't want to crit- I'm, I don't know enough about the CSIRO budget into blockchain, but um, it seems weird. It'd be like, a, I'm trying to think of an equivalent, something where you're looking at another particular technology and trying to just, like, fund that rather than actually funding a, a larger study into uh, what was essentially the automation of law, which is what the blockchain is kind of about. Uh, there, It seems like a larger study around that whole industry rather than a specific technology itself. Mm. It'd be like... It'd be like um, uh, going and- after Siri, like, like a... a, a, a Getting money to to study Siri rather than getting money to stun, study AI, and it, it also seems sense. a little bit strange that the CSIRO is going to have this um, when you know we think of them as a, a scientific body, and yes, there are elements of of um, the the technical and the mathematical and everything in the blockchain, but you also need really complex understandings of economics and markets and those yeah. sort of things. So to me, I'm not sure it matches up exactly. I think they should put that money in the climate change area yeah. of the CSIRO, but that's just me. Yeah. Look, it can't all be doom and gloom. So I do <laughs> want to say that I was happy to read that the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner has been spared by this budget. Which is um, amazing, by the mm, way. Mm. So... Uh, the office deals with digital privacy, freedom of information and information policy for Australia's federal bodies. And it's really important because all of these areas are areas that are uh, not dealt with adequately in current legislation because, you know, the technologies that they're now having to deal with that are influencing these these areas are, are really rapidly changing. And so you know, law needs to catch up. And um, having a commissioner there to help... Uh, look after people's interests in yeah. this area is really important. It's also um, 
privacy is still not seen and security in that respect as well as um, the things that aren't seen as very important um, by large companies in a lot of cases it's the, the getting caught or the, the the breach itself that's more important than everyday security um, so it's good to see that that's still there I'm hoping that something like that encourages you know greater adoption of like secure practices and good information security things like that um, but we'll see I guess mm. Mm. Moving on from the budget, um, it's been a long time coming, but and I suppose it's still a very slow drip feed. But remember when Apple Pay launched in Australia all those years ago? Yes. Yes, on those cards that not very many people use. On those use. cards that not many people use, <laughs> yes. On, on, they, they were, they were uh, for a while exclusive to American Express cards. Yes, they were. Um, it has now been announced that ANZ will be uh, jumping on board the Apple Pay train. So if you are an ANZ customer or if you want to be an ANZ customer, you now have, and, and an Apple customer, I suppose, uh, you now have the uh, ability to use PayWave technology uh, through your iPhone. Which, which is, is a, that's actually a big deal too. Um, mm. Again, uh, Apple Pay is actually a fairly secure way of making payments. It's not so much a problem here uh, in the States, for example, where it solves a number of problems. It mm. has to do with um, keeping you anonymous from the merchant. So you actually get a, a randomized credit card and a randomized set of information sent to the merchant, which is why they were pushing back so hard with their own solutions to Apple Pay. Um, but we still get those benefits in Australia as well. Here in Australia, we have better privacy um, and legislation around how credit card information is handled and what a, a merchant is entitled to. But even so, um, it's a really great thing in that respect. Um, but yeah, it, it's kind of, it's a bit concerning from a perspective of the monopolization of this kind of technology. Um, uh, I guess again in Australia it's not so bad because we have PayWave, but those that kind of idea of a tech company controlling your entire incoming and outgoings is kind of scary in my view. So it's yeah, double edged sword again. Mm, so maybe <laughs> don't use your Apple Pay for everything you do. You could use it for some things. Is that what, is that what you're it, saying? Mess it up, like I, yeah, mix totally. between different cards. I, I use it when I forget my wallet, yeah. which is quite frequently. Because if if one bank knew all of the coffee purchases I was making everywhere, it'd be very suspect, I think. You know, better to, better to spread that caffeine addiction around multiple cards and services. Totally. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so another big piece of yes. news in the computing sector this week was obviously that uh, an Australian, Craig Wright, has claimed to be Satoshi Nakamoto, the founder of the the blockchain technology it's a really awkward story, actually. Um, so earlier this week, Craig White, uh, Wright, excuse me, um, revealed himself to be the Bitcoin creator Satoshi Nakamoto um, and produced some forms of proof to uh, support this claim. Um, but the problem with that is, is that uh, this is the same guy, by the way, who was raided by the ATO, I believe, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. over some stuff that I'm not, again, fully aware of. Um, but more to the point... Um, this um, claiming that he's Satoshi Nakamoto has been a very, very... It, it firstly was kind of widely reported as being fact. Um, since then, a number of people have looked into it uh, more deeply than the initial run of articles and have found that it's probably a good chance that it's not true. Um, there's a signature that he's put out signing an earlier, like a very early um, involvement in Bitcoin. I'm trying to simplify this really, really easy, uh, really uh, quite a lot. Um, and that signature could have been faked um, quite easily. Uh, he managed to convince a number of p core people on the Bitcoin team who didn't, who worked with Nakamoto but didn't know uh, the identity of the person or people involved in that project. Um, but it's just so... 
it's it's quite difficult talking about this without speculating so much but it's yeah. just so it's super fishy and it's like he, he's gone on to say i'm not providing any more proof you can all go to hell he was caught earlier um uh six months ago uploading a, a fake pgp key pretending to be nakamoto so it's it's super fishy so people care about this a lot because nakamoto's meant to have invented the blockchain there's a lot of questions that people would want to ask of the intentions of someone who did that um Nakamoto has got posts out there in the public domain talking about the technology and everything. And so his style and a bit about his personality is speculated about. Yeah, and, um, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of putting a face to a, a, a political and social revolution in that way yeah. or a movement, not a revolution, a movement. Um, and that's, that's really hard. Like it's great that it's anonymous because it means that it forces you to focus on the actual technology itself and not, completely. And not the politics of the person. Totally. And, mm. and, and, and so in, in the case of bitcoin one of the biggest problems is the the community itself the technology is sound the community itself is rife with this kind of drama and it just will (laughs) never ever go away all of the news all the time is just nonsense like this that's right in the past it was you know who is the dread pirate roberts and now we have who is satoshi nakamoto and it's just it's just unbearable between Mm -hmm. that and like the shysters in the community who uh you know collapse um collapsed uh exchanges and things like that it's just it's it's seriously hindering this technology and it's just not going away (laughs) so kate uh, i was i was grasping for a metaphor to to compare what it's like for craig to be standing up and saying that he is satoshi nakamoto and uh, i thought look if we start with say who is batman if someone if just a random person in the public sort of said I am Batman, and let's pretend like we don't know it's Bruce yeah. Wayne. Yeah. Like, how do we know that that person wasn't Batman? What and you know what what's what's the evidence that he's produced? Like, is it like having the car keys to the Batmobile and saying, therefore, I must be Batman? Or it's like saying I have a tattoo of the bat symbol on my arm, <laughs> which I got before Batman showed up. So I'm totally Batman. That's kind of what it's like. I uh, I thank you for that excellent analysis, Cade. You were you were absolutely the man for the job. <laughs> You're with Bite Into It with Dan, Cade, and Vanessa. Thanks for tuning in. We have just been joined in studio by Dan Groch and Ezekiel Kigbo. They are both from Code for Australia and are here to tell us more about it. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Hey. So we've definitely spoken to Code for Australia a few times over the years, and the reason we keep having you back is because we really believe in the purpose of your organisation. Dan, would you like to go through for our listeners who don't know who Code for Australia are, a bit about who you are and, and what you what you do. Absolutely. So Code for Australia is a non-profit organisation uh, founded to help transform the way that government does digital. Uh, so it started out around about three years ago as a grassroots uh, movement. So organising the community, hackathons uh, and the like. Uh, and in the last couple of weeks, we've launched a program called Code for Victoria uh, with the backing of Victorian government to um, place nine talented people inside government to disrupt and innovate and hopefully open minds. I love this idea and um, I know that some of our listeners might have heard about Code for America and not realised that there's a Code for Australia and now a Code for Victoria. Um, What is your relationship with the broader Code Fours? Absolutely. So when we first started, there was no relationship at all. We just literally took the name uh, and ran with it. Uh, but we're now part of what's called the Code for All network. So uh, outside of America and outside of Australia, there's uh, Code for Germany, Code for Korea, Code for Japan, Code for a lot of countries. So there's 
sort of a wide degree of collaboration now. I really want to hear more about the Code for Victoria, but I think we'll park that for a moment because we have Ezekiel in studio and um, I think that, Ezekiel, you can really bring the sort of projects that Code for Australia have been facilitating to life. You've been working with the Neighbourhood Justice Centre, which is a a centre based in Collingwood, which um, lots of our listeners might have ridden by in in their life through the suburb. Can you tell us, you know, a little bit about what you're doing with them and um, and how you got involved in Code for Australia? Uh, yeah. Um, so I guess it all kind of funnily started on Triple R. So I was uh, at a previous role in another organisation um, and I listened to Bite Into It quite regularly and I heard about Code for Australia through the show. So I thought, hey, that's yeah. sort of interesting. I'll put in my details and see what happens down the track. Um, and a few months later, a fellowship opportunity op- opened up, which happened to be this one. Um, so I sort of just put in my application and went about my day. And yeah, now nine months later, I'm deep in it. Now, um, had you ever heard of the Neighbourhood Justice Centre? No, I had never heard it. I never even thought that this sort of model of justice um, even existed in Australia. So it was quite interesting to find out that it's just right next door to the tote. Yeah, I think that's the way to tell our listeners where it is, really. <laughs> so what they are is they're another version of... Um, they're like an alternative to the courts, it looks like, a, a different way of, of coming to conflict resolution in the criminal justice system? Yeah, definitely. So um, it functions as a magistrate's, cent- uh, magistrate's court for the city of Yarra, um, but they also work with a whole bunch of different social services um they've got deep networks sort of within all the city of Yarra and they work together to try and bring about resolutions to conflict within the community and it's about sort of forging that sort of community resilience and how does the community cope with problems as they come up so as a code for australia fellow presumably you've got a bit of a civic sensibility and you've got some technical skills when uh when you started working with the Neighbourhood Justice Centre, did you know what problems they had and how you might be able to help them? Not really. I didn't really have much of a background to law in general. So um, part of the structure of the fellowship is you spend your first three months doing research within the actual centre that you're working with. So that was a a mixture of about three months' worth of user interviews, um, simply sitting with staff as they go about their day-to-day and basically just sort of building that picture of what's going on. And from that, you then use that research to actually inform um, potential problems that you can sort of address. And some of them have been a mixture of problems that I've identified and said, hey, we could try doing this aspect slightly differently. And some of them have been um, issues that actual staff have raised through my research. And I've kind of been there as a person to kind of give the them an idea of what you can kind of do potentially with technology to solve problem X. So as part of the fellowship, uh, did you come up with a single larger project as and then deliver that? Or is it a series of smaller things? So it's been a series of small projects. Um, how it kind of works is ideally you kind of try as many things as you can yep, initially. Absolutely. So what we're really about is trying to get government into a position where they can prototype these ideas at a low cost and low amount of time, essentially. So um, very very early on, we were just working on very small paper-based prototypes and as ideas sort of continue and the discussion around those ideas kind of get bigger and bigger, those start to form into actual projects. And what kind of projects uh, made it into the 
realization stage. Yeah. So currently, one of the ones I'm working on, um, we're prototyping how you can kind of basically start the discussion around transactional services for courts. Um, so one way we thought we could attack that is by how could you plead guilty to a minor crime? So what we're thinking is essentially we want to reduce the amount of foot traffic on the court. So we want to also provide a good interface for the clients of the court and let them actually kind of interact with the court in their own way, in their own space. Um, so for minor crimes, we're looking at ways that you can actually sort of facilitate that um, discussion and kind of let let your case still be heard in a normal way, but maybe not have to actually physically come into court. And uh, what sort of problems... Uh have sort of cropped up that surprised you as part of that, not to put you on the spot. Yeah, <laughs> that's all right. Um, a lot of it's just sort of been, uh, I guess, organisational and sort of getting the momentum continuing with projects. So I'm working with um, quite a wide range of stakeholders in this one particularly. So we're working with lawyers, the magistrate, police prosecutors, um, and you've got the, the day-to-day work that people have to attend to. So it's trying to work around that and kind of keep the project rolling and yeah. keep showing progress and all that sort of stuff. So how did you discover that making the, the plea process more efficient was something that the users wanted or something that the people managing the centre thought was a gap? Uh, I guess essentially a lot of it came out of just the need to reduce that foot traffic within the courts. Um, and the magistrates' courts in Queensland actually piloted a similar idea. So we thought, hey, this is something that has potential, so why can't we implement a similar thing in our own court? Um, so that was really sort of the background to the discussion of it, I guess, and how we came about it. So with your whole range of skills, um, what skills are you bringing to bear to help develop solutions so that if, if our listeners are listening, they might go, oh, I have some of those skills? Yep. Um, so I'm quite lucky in the sense that I have enough of an idea of what goes on design-wise, and I've done a little bit of UX research here and there, um, but I'm also a developer. So I've been working across that entire spectrum of how do we sort of formulate an idea, find a design solution, and then sort of prototype it and keep keep building upon that sort of uh, idea and then keep testing it and validating as we go along. Great. So that brings us back to you, Dan. When you're looking at these sort of fellowships, how are you finding your partners and finding the right projects to work on? And then, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. To start with. Um, So taking uh, Code for Victoria as an example, um, so Ezekiel was uh, definitely a special case. He's been uh, at the Neighbourhood Justice Centre by himself, so he has really run the gamut of having to do design, uh, research and actually developing a product as well. Um, But with Code for Victoria, for example, what we're doing is placing three teams of three uh, people. So, you know, in that team we try and cover the spectrum of someone who's great at design, so you've got UX, visual, research, somebody that kind of covers that spectrum um, and then there's the development angle as well so both front end uh, and back end so crucially I mean they're product teams uh, in a sense it's kind of you know in, in startup land um, you know, there's a lot of talk about you need a hipster a hacker and a hustler <laughs> so that's kind of the, the personality profiles we're recruiting for Yep. So that's on the skills side. Now, when you're looking at who have the problems, um, you've taken a really unique approach to working uh, in this Code for Victoria model. Can you can you outline that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So it, 
in some way uh, the table's been turned. So uh, in this case, uh, so the program's been funded um, by the Public Sector Innovation Fund uh, and they've really opened the door to uh, state government departments to pitch to get access to these fellows. So at the moment uh, we're not just taking applications from fellows but we're taking applications from uh, big government departments who have identified that they've got a problem, which is great, uh, and they're you know, trying to get access to the people that will help them solve it. I don't have anything right oh, now. Sorry. I'm just um, <laughs> thinking in terms of the uh, uh, the kind of things that uh, as a wider community, again, sorry to put you on the spot with this, um, uh, do what are some of the examples of code for international um, uh, projects that have been delivered in that, you know, did the, that people might know about or that, that uh, sort of had been received really well? Uh, like in terms of product, I'm not sure that specific products have kind of, you know, jumped jumped the boundaries as it were and been extended from the states to here. But definitely the emphasis has been a lot around uh, education. Yep. Um, education, uh, justice have been um, sort of the focal points for those sort of um, solutions that have been built. So most in that case, like most of the uh, code for international projects are very, very hyper-specific and not necessarily like um, uh, something online that's then... It's sort of designed directly for specific um, cases? Yeah, like it often kind of comes out of a... So taking Code for America, for an example, they've got a city-oriented uh, focus. Um, they have run um, uh, presidential innovation fellows as well, but it's typically around cities. Uh, and so it's often looking at like core transactional services that people interact with regularly. Um, and trying to figure out how how do we actually improve the delivery of this particular service, which, um, you know, in Ezekiel's case, he's talking about, you know, how do we, like, taking time out of your day to attend court is you know, quite a pain. Mm. So how do we make those sort of services, um, how do we take the friction out of them, make them more enjoyable? And are the fellowships open right now for application? They are. So we'll be accepting applications uh, through till the end of June, okay. um, and then fellows will be starting on the 1st of August. What's the address of that? Codevictoria.org. <laughs> and uh, when when you think of the the skills of those sort of people, um, are you, you know, are you thinking uh, that who's who's going to bring the project management, the the oversight to to those teams of three? Yeah. So actually, uh, so at the moment we're recruiting also for we've kind of titled it CTO, but effectively somebody who's the program manager. So uh, I think within the next three months we'll have in total. Uh, 16 fellows. Um, so there's now fellows working uh, with Moreton Bay Council in Queensland, um, the Office of Environment and Heritage in New South Wales. So we're now uh, now national, and it's become quite a uh, you know a reach and a, a project in itself. Now, are you going to have some fun with this pitching process with these departments? Because you know pitching means something I imagine quite different to a government department than it means within the startup community. And uh, startup pitches are, are very short and very lean. And in government, you tend to think of people impressing other people and doing. I'm thinking you know big Commonwealth Games pitches and that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, so I wonder if there's anything of, of this sort of scale there. And have they asked you uh, anything about how you expect them to pitch? And have you created a process? Uh, yes, we do have a process. So on, on the website, uh, codevictoria.org, um, it's set up so that there's a form that they basically submit uh, and then we will then shortlist them and uh, then the real pitching will begin to sort of whittle down that, that list to three. So it's going to be like the shark tank, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's what we want to hear. So, Dan, working at a not-for-profit, you know, it's got to be 
pretty challenging. Um, you know, how do you keep your motivation up to to keep going out and trying to bring tech into places that might be um, quite traditional in the way that they've operated? Uh, yeah, look, I think um, for me. It's just been amazing to watch the community grow. Um, so starting from, you know, three guys that had the idea that something that seemed to be um, succeeding and actually bringing about change in the States, um, you know, and why isn't it here? So starting from three to now, you know, national... We, we held an event a couple of weeks ago um, where we screened a documentary called um, Code Debugging the Gender Gap. Mm-hmm. It's all about gender equality issues in tech. Uh, and we were just blown away. We had 120 people register for the event. You know, it was it was a free event, but effectively all of the tickets were taken. And just the amount of um, enthusiasm, um, which has existed for quite a while in the community, um, it's great to see it now pervading the public sector um, and that, you know, minds have been opened there and they're willing to accept a new way of working. Mm. Besides the um, Code for Australia Fellowship Program, are you guys working on any other um, uh, programs or... I guess, um, systems within Code for Australia? Yeah, so there's really, there's three arms to what we do. So the fellowship is kind of central. Um, we do community organising. So, you know, in every state we've got meetups effectively or um, events happening regularly. Uh, we held an event called Budget Hack um, about a month ago. Um, but we also do um, education. So we've just finished now our first academy. And so that brought together people from within government and people from the private sector for a period of, I think it was 10 weeks of sort of intensive, um, immersive learning. Um, so so a lot of education as well. Learning around uh, Code for Australia or more just general tech? or tech, Yeah, so design thinking and some right, of those, yeah, okay. you know, processes. Yep. So Ezekiel, as an experienced Code for Australia fellow, uh, what would you say to people who might have a little bit of a, a twinkle in their eye hearing that there's new opportunities coming up? Yeah, I mean, I think if if you're interested, definitely go for it. Um, for me, I think the thing I've enjoyed the most is just having the opportunity to actually use my skills and the knowledge that I have to work on things that actually have a real-world impact and hopefully will have a positive impact or at least lead to some sort of change along the way. Um, so I think it's a really great opportunity to take all that knowledge and all that amazing experience and talent that you have and actually put it towards helping everyone in your community. Excellent. Um, Dan, anything else you want to leave us with? Any details again? Uh, <laughs> I just repeat. So the website is um, codeforvictoria.org. Um, it is separate to our usual website, which is codeforaustralia.org. Thanks so much for coming in, Dan and Ezekiel. I do hope that some of our listeners are ones who take that up and maybe we'll be speaking to them in studio in the future. It's a fantastic initiative for yeah, sure. Yeah, all, all the you. best of yeah. the program. Thank you. You're with Bite Into It with Dan, Kate and Vanessa. We're really pleased to welcome on air PhD researcher Kayla J. Heffernan, who is working at the, well, researching at the Department of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne, looking at all these amazing insertable technologies. Welcome, Kayla. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. So we have been microchipping animals for a long, long time now. How far are we away from humans having microchips inside us? So it's already happening, um, which kind of shocks quite a few people. Um, and when I started researching it too, I, I was surprised to find that um, it's actually been going on since 1998 was the first case of some someone microchipping themselves. Um, it was a professor doing it for research purposes as a proof of concept. Uh, and since about 2005, hobbyists and just normal people have been inserting themselves with microchips. 
So what really captures your imagination about using technology in this way? I think it offers uh, new and exciting possibilities for people who, who are sick of wearables or, um, you know, the absent-minded professor who forgets their card, their access card, or forgets their keys, uh, which I have to say I do all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, the idea came to me um, a few... A, a couple of years ago, cold winter's morning in Melbourne, had my glove on and my Mikey in my glove and I touched on with the palm of my hand and sort of looked like a really cool wizard and had some people <laughs> looking at me a bit. People were looking at me a bit funny and I thought, oh, I wonder if this is a thing. And it just started from there. It started from a Google and, yeah. Cool. So, Kayla, you, you um, said that uh, microchipping technology is already available for people. What kind of applications right now are there for it? So um, there are two different types of microchips that people can get. Uh, one is an NFC chip, which is basically um, the technology that's in your PayWave credit card uh, and, and in MyKey, uh, and an RFID, which is very similar, just uses a different um, radio waves to communicate. With the NFC chips, they can be used to unlock a lot of Android phones because um, they come with the built-in NFC. The Apple phones haven't unlocked this yet for anything other than um, the Apple Pay. So they'll use it for uh, unlocking their phone or launching an app, sharing contact details, getting into their office, their home, their cars even. Some people have modified their cars and motorbikes um, to just be able to open it with their hand, essentially. So those are like real-world examples that you have now. What sort of potential does the technology have from that first step of like uh, identifying yourself and opening things and paying for things? Yeah, so we're definitely at the, the early stages where um, it's generally just used as an input to trigger something else off. Like you say, uh, it goes, you know, this is Kayla. She has access to this door. Let her in. Uh, we're not really seeing much payments yet, although some people have been experimenting with that. Uh, one person hooked it up to their, um, their Bitcoin account and paid for something online. Another one uh, hooked it up to his passport and got through the airport using his hand. Wow, obviously, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, obviously he still had his passport on him uh, just in case they weren't going to accept that. A hand <laughs> print, wow, yeah. Uh, and yeah I get... so Sorry, go on. Mm-hmm. I was just say, we're, uh, we're right at the start of this, so um, people are experimenting and seeing what they can do with the microchips. The um, passport anecdote uh, leads really, really well into things like safety and um, the regulatory issues. Um, are we already beginning to see some issues around those? Um, and, or what, what sort of issues are you anticipating? So, obviously, yeah, you can. Uh, one of the questions we get a lot is, so that the government can track me. Um, and now that's <laughs> not really how, how this technology works. So, if you think if you lose your cat or your dog, you can't just pull up an app and see where your cat or your dog is. They have to be found and taken to the vet and bred with the correct proprietary reader and hooked up to the correct database. So if they happen to cross into WA, it's not going to connect to the right database. Um, And, I mean, you're already carrying your mobile phone, which has much more capabilities than (laughs) than these tiny little passive chips. Um, But there are obviously questions that arise. People say things like, oh, well, why don't we microchip sex offenders um again there's not really much point to that because you can't track them 
Um, but it does become sort of a slippery slope argument. Uh, everyone that we've talked to has completely chosen to do this, completely voluntary, and we're really focusing on the voluntary use with personal choice and agency, um, pretty much assuming that there won't be a day where people are forced to do this because society will will revolt. We revolted <laughs> against, you know, Australia doesn't have a national Australia ID card. We're not going to let the government microchip us. Yeah, so Kayla, when we're looking at some of these technologies, um, the chips are created once and then we can program them to trigger off different things. Are there any instances of people using um, chips that are reprogrammable from outside the body? Yes. So um, our participants are using uh, chips that they can rewrite. They can replace the data really easily depending on which type of chip it is. So uh, if you have an NFC chip, you can just rewrite it uh, with your mobile phone, with your Android phone, really easily. That's cool. I had no idea you could do that. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Do you have um, many issues with um, rejection of the bo- from the body? Say, like, a, any kind of uh, e- earring or anything like that? Yeah, really interestingly, um, of our participants, so um, we've had 17 in-depth interviews and we've got an ongoing survey at the moment. With those 17, none with the microchips have experienced um, rejection. Um, but there are people who are putting magnets um, in their body and they're used to pick up electromagnetic uh, waves and you can sort of feel electricity. It adds a new sense. Um, We have had two participants have rejection with those, got infected and came out. I think there are a few Um, shutters in the the studio (laughs) at that point. (laughs) Yeah, but they both are reinserted, so... um, yeah, it didn't put them off. So I guess that brings us to, you know, there, there can be a bit of a cringe factor of some of these things. Some of it's just um, unfamiliarity. But are these devices getting less intrusive over time? Are you seeing them, them modify in different, you know, design ways? Absolutely. So um, I, I saw you tweeted out the photo of uh, a 10-year-old chip and the new chip. So the latest one is the, the size of a grain of rice, basically. Um, so they're getting smaller and smaller. Um, and obviously, as they get smaller, it's less invasive. Um, they're just put in um, nowadays the microchips with a large gauge needle, which are very similar to the ones they use for body piercings. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So, what about um, when we when we hear articles about people almost tattooing things into their skin, um, like chip type things? Do you think that we're going to see? that sort of technology possible quite soon? Um, I think as it gets more um, more accepted, when people become more comfortable with this, we'll see more people, but I don't think we'll ever get to a day where everyone will do it because, as you say, there's that, like, there's sort of that ick factor. Um, some people would never get a tattoo. Some people would never get a piercing. Some people will never do this. Mm-hmm. But for the people who would like to get involved... Um, is there are there programs around Australia for this, or uh, how would they get involved in a way that's a little bit more medically safe than just getting a syringe and injecting themselves? <laughs> yes, uh, we wouldn't recommend self-insertion. <laughs> um, there's a, a website called Dangerous Things, and they're one of the. Um, it's very yeah, reassuring. Kind of a funny name. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're one of the biggest um, sellers of these types of kits, and they have a list of their. Um, authorised partners, body piercers and tattooists. And I think there's a couple in Australia around there. 
That's what, so fascinating. Yeah. What, what, what would, would you expect to, um, to pay, I suppose, to have this uh, technology kind of inserted in your body? And like, if, what, what's, what's stopping me right now from going out and doing it? Um, yeah, well, um, you could buy it online, wait a couple of weeks for it to come. It's about $100 US. Um, and then take it to one of these partners. I don't know what they charge for their services. Um, or there is one um, place in Melbourne that um, sells them and implants them for about uh, $250. That's, and, then, and then it's a matter of getting an app that will kind of program the chip to do the things that you want to do. Yeah, yeah. And if you, um, if, if you have a work access that accepts that, you can just ask them to, to enter your number um, <laughs> of your chip into their system or you can clone uh, your existing tag onto the chip. Dan's face just lit up here. I want this. <laughs> <laughs> is, there, is there much of a technical barrier? Like, is there something that uh, is primarily the, the nicheness of it that's holding back a greater... Uh, or wider use of it, or is there like a technical component to it as well that, that's quite te- technically difficult to use? Yeah, I think that um, some of the reason that we don't see it more widespread is the technical barrier. So while if you have an NFC um, and an Android phone, it, it's pretty easy. I did have one participant who had one and had a Apple phone and so just had this dormant chip and had never done anything with it. Um, or people who don't know how to modify their car lock to mm. accept this because it's not a widespread input option to many things. They have to get additional peripherals or code things and it gets a little bit more complicated for your average person. So, Kayla, it seems that so many of the applications at the moment are things about convenience, like it would be helpful, it would be convenient. I wonder, are there any applications you've seen for people who are differently abled? Yeah, um, a couple of our participants are um, kind of pioneering this. I mean, because it's a relatively new phenomenon, they're becoming makers and then creating this new profession. And um, they used a magnet with a sensor over it, um, hooked up to a proximity sensor and essentially was able to walk around the room eyes closed. So you can think what that would mean for... Yeah, for blind people um, in sensor, sensorial parity or expansion. Okay, that's that's starting to get pretty interesting there. Yeah. <laughs> so what is, what's the ultimate aim of your particular part of research into this area? Yeah, so I'm looking at, um, well, first off was just what are people inserting and why uh, and then what applications they're using it for. And then I'm going to go and look on at... Um, how people design this technology and what's different about the UX and the design of insertable things and what kind of usability principles um, should we design to for these devices. Well, it's been an absolutely fascinating insight into this very invisible area of technology. Thanks very much for describing some of these uses with us, uh, for us, I mean. Yeah, no thanks worries. for joining thanks us, for Kelly. Having- Thanks for having me. Cheers. It's always a bit tricky on the phones with you interrupting each other. Um, we apologise for that. And, uh, yeah, hope to hear more from you when your research is wrapped up. We want to say a big thank you for tuning in tonight. Thanks to our guests, Dan Grotch and Ezekiel Kigbo from Code for Australia Amazing. and the upcoming Code for Victoria. And thanks to Kayla Hennig. You've been listening to a podcast uh, from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au. 